You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Yammer and yabber, this girl is all jabber. Delusion thanks, more oblivious yanks, expected. But sheesh, what a scrub. Without you I'd perish, she grubs. Your presence alone salvates my mug. I nod. That's a given. I'm her stoic, tectonic, heroic, accepting such gratitude mildly. You're whatever's amuse I crumb her. When abruptly there, what we pass around slumped to the ground, a crop of tortured bones, agony of all I skitter by so easily. My horse, at last, unlasting, sad corpse beside timber and rot, also unnaturally cut. A splendid little, a strange life, Filipinos and freedom. Mark Z. Danielewski is the author of House of Leaves, The Whale's Toe Letters, and The Fifty-Year Sword. His new work is Only Revolutions. Welcome to the program, Mark. Thank you very much. Mark, when I read your books, I think of books that change the world, that can change the world. Do you think that books can change the world, that they have in the past, and that they could continue to do so in the future? I, I think everything changes the world, really. I think I think that notion that... You know, it's that sort of, what's that, there's that wonderful story about, about the rabbis who realize that just by moving one stone, if they move it in the right way, they will completely change the world. So I think there's that sort of puissance in everything, whether it's a book, whether it's, you know, the way a mother raises a child the way someone at a restaurant serves a customer, everything has the chance to change the world. And if anything, it's, 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 it's important to me that there is that awareness, you know, that there, are no, there is no such thing as dull and mute acts. It all matters. Tell us a little bit about how you came to write your first novel, House of Leaves, well, it was a long process. It took me 10 years to write. And it, it was certainly after college that, you know, I sensed within me just something that wanted to get out. And I knew it was a book, and I felt like it was a big book. But I was writing sketches. I was writing uh, sort of scenes for a character that would ultimately evolve into Johnny Truant. Um, I wrote a series of essays for myself purely looking at how text might be used using a cinematic grammar in a book that would modulate and amplify uh, the reader's experience. And I had a collection of sort of scenes that involved a family and, and a whole bunch of things were sort of thrown out there. And, and I didn't really know if these were separate stories, if there was a book within them or what it was. And uh, it was in 1993, not, not too long after my father died, that I had this idea of, of a house that was a quarter of an inch bigger on the inside than the outside. And at the time, I just thought, well, maybe that's a short story or, or a poem or something or a footnote. Uh, and I, I forgot about it, and, uh, but I couldn't forget about it. It just lived with me for six months and kind of kept knocking at my door, so to speak. And I suddenly realized, wait a minute. This is the thing that 
encapsulates everything that I've been working on. So suddenly I could see, like, because of the shifting house, it would enable the um, it would enable the the the, the the text to shift and the pages to shift. And then suddenly I could envision how there was this young guy, this Johnny Truant character who would, you know, discover this house. And, and then eventually he was actually discovering the manuscript about the house and all of that. So, so that was pretty exciting. And then pretty much was a straight shot from there, another seven years of hard work. Um, but at, at that moment, it really was very clear about how to do it. And then it was just a matter of, uh, of following through. When you started writing this, did you did you have any idea of how you were going to get published? Did you have an agent? I, I I mean, this is a challenging book. It's not the kind of book that you can like take to somebody and say, "Well, here's a bestseller about something everybody can understand." How did you? I didn't care. You didn't I really care. didn't. I think part of the reason was uh, I'd had the experience of writing a few screenplays, mm-hmm. uh, and nothing ever happened with them. And for me, that was that was that was its own sort of sad experience experiment because. Screenplays really do live in a kind of limbo. They're they're unfulfilled. They're they're asking for, for someone to actually realize them. And I realized that personally, I was incredibly proud of certain poems that I had written in college or short stories. Some even dating back to high school time, that I could show anyone. They didn't really. They didn't have to be made into a movie or 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 animated in some form. And uh, and so that's that's kind of that's what I felt when I finished House of Leaves. I was like, this is done, you know. And you know, I knew enough about literature to know that you never you never know. I mean, Melville's Moby Dick went out of print; it was gone. You know, he 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 would be incredibly surprised to come back and see what a what a you know a monument it is in the landscape of American literature. So, whether something's published and is and is considered a bestseller, or whether something's not published and is considered worthless really doesn't matter in in the in the scope of things. One thing I did do though to give myself a little satisfaction was publish it online and uh, around that experience gathered you know 50 60 I can't remember readers maybe more than that. Um and it was sort of through them that I realized how how diverse a group this particular uh creation appealed to. There was a cop in the Southland, there was a stripper, there was a school teacher, there was a young kid, you know, it was a whole range of people. And um, and that ultimately didn't help me get an agent or get published, but it did help me as, as we moved forward with the publication to sort of express that this wasn't just something that would appeal to young males. Uh, it was something that w- would have a, a, a a far wider appeal and uh, because I guess that that early experience and exposure on the internet really um, allowed me to sort of you know communicate with my publishers what what they had and and they went along with it and uh, the rest is history Did you publish this on a website? I mean, this is a, if we're talking '93. That's pretty early in the history of the well, no, this was uh, internet. This was published. This would have been no, not '93 is when I had that that sort of epiphany, if you will. Oh, okay. Um, th- this would have been in '99, I think. But it still was pretty early. Oh it yes, was, yes. It was one of those websites with backslashes and tildes and all sorts of. You know, it was a long address, and it was through, uh, you know, and. 
a local a local um, internet provider, and it was certainly nothing fancy. It was it took a great deal to figure out how to convert the thing to a PDF, which at the time was just just so complex and. Uh, and so there were a lot of hurdles, but it was it was fun to do. And once we got it up there, it was uh, it was it was sort of interesting the kind of feedback I got. The experience you talked a little bit about the reading experience. The experience of reading something online is really different from reading it in a book. Mm-hmm. A- and one of the things that strikes me about your writing is you're very interested in the way we read, the way we pick up the book. Mm-hmm. And so tell me a little bit about how you approached the text of House of Leaves, did you typeset it yourself? Or, or oh, yeah. And, and Quark? Every, yeah, absolutely. Oh. No, uh, yeah, actually Quark. We did, uh, I did the Labyrinth chapter in um, in Quark. And some of the, a lot of the sections were actually kept in Word. But Word was so um, problematic because it was constantly reflowing that the real challenge was how to use professional fonts and then again export it into a PDF that was a, a high enough quality that they could actually print it. Um, but you know, for me, the main, you know, one of the things that's very important to me is how people experience the content of the book in relationship to the physicality of the book. So, in House of Leaves, you actually have um, the text you know, narrowing, thinning out, getting increasingly more dense. It slows you down like the house. It loses you like the labyrinth. It allows you to speed along as the, as the house opens up. It, 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 it emulates the, those kind of psychological dynamics that the house and the characters within are experiencing. Um, for Only Revolutions, what was important to me was that, that it, it, and this was something that I, that I immediately understood early on was that the book itself could des- describe the relationship where these two characters starting on either end of the book are actually far apart. And then slowly they make the, as they make their way along this journey, they get closer and closer to one another and to seeing each other accurately. That by the middle, they're in, in complete alignment and in complete balance uh, to the point where even their ribbons will touch and then they start to move apart from each other. And we experience that. We experience that their relationship is starting to move away from each other, even though they are still close to one another. So that was, that was something that was so simple in my head and yet was incredibly complex to fulfill. The kind of writing that you're doing is really only possible with the technology we have today, isn't it? I mean, you couldn't, I don't think you could really write something like Only Revolutions with a pad of paper and a pencil. Absolutely. And uh, I actually embrace that. I realize that it, as much as, as, this, as this book is indebted, if you will, to, you know, to, to many of the classics, including you know, Milton's Paradise Lost or, or Wordsworth or you know, the Romantics or whatnot, it at the same time you know, required the, the technological reach that we have today. And uh, for me, the writing process was, was very much like, you know, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. It did start with pencil and paper. I was sketching out how the book would look, and I wrote out by hand Haley's story and Sam's story. And then slowly I started tinkering with Word and Quark, and then ultimately I settled on Adobe InDesign's um, 
uh, creative suite. And then I realized I needed a G5 tower with a dual processor. I finally got a 23-inch screen so I could lay out both pages. I had to hunt down certain third-party uh, uh, software plugins to, you know, allow for certain indexing and, and countings and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, and then even going further just to subscribe online to certain research services. Uh, I was subscribed to the OED so I could rapidly check etymologies and, and, uh, and you know, trace certain words from certain times, etc. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that's it's sort of a responsibility of a writer to recognize what his or her time is. One of the things that's quite apparent is that this all gets to the reader. And you talked a little bit about this, this the physicality of books. Books are really in, in a... People are worried about reading books. There's a lot of talk of that. People won't be reading books, that, that books can't compete with movies and with online games. And I think your books are really... They're the competition against this latest barrage of electronic phenomena. Hmm. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh I mean, I, I guess I, maybe it's simply because I come from a perspective of I love the electronic barrage. I love movies. I love, you know, certain television shows. I love looking around on YouTube or MySpace or listening to music. And, you know, and I, I enjoy what one can find, uh, you know, online. And I'm always, I'm always, you know, looking at what the next, you know, next computer is the next geek solution to the future is whether it's reading Kurzweil or whatnot um but at the same time you know i i think that the way i approach books is not from a position of contention against that world but just simply saying well why do i want to read a book that takes me four days that I could basically see in a movie that took me two hours because a lot of our, a lot of what's at, at stake today is how we allocate our time, how much time we have. So for me, I, I want to read a book and hence I will write a book that is going to offer me an experience that I can't get anywhere else. Because if I'm going to put that kind of work into just reading a book, I want it to give me an experience that is beyond what I can get online, in a movie theater, listen to on my iPod, whatever. And that's the excitement for me. And that's what I'm always checking myself against. Like, can, can a movie do this? Can a song do this? No, I don't think so. I think this experience lives only in this book. And if you don't like it, that doesn't bother me. But the point is, you can't find it anywhere else. And that's, that's what matters to me. This is fascinating. I don't think I've ever talked to another author who thought about the the reading experience before. That so many people think of books as being the written version of a movie, and, and yet the the reading experience does create that kind of cyberspace. That's equivalent of of where your body tries to go when you're playing a, a video game, as, as what Gibson said. Yeah, absolutely. And and even to be more specific, it's it's. You can't make a movie of only revolutions. I mean, Sam and Haley are every race, every shape. I mean, there's, it's impossible to create an image of their particular, you know, facial structure, if you will, 
And yet at the same time, when you read it, somehow you know what they look like. Somehow you can envision who they are. And yet that is really beyond illumination because it's what's happening just under the surface, just outside of the surface, a kind of quantum haze that you're able to, you know, approximate mentally and create an image of that you just couldn't do in a movie. So that's the thrill for me. Talk about a quantum haze. One thing I like about your works is to me, they're funny. I think you have a really great sense of humor. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and they exist in this kind of quantum haze between tragedy and farce. Mm -hmm. they're, they're at once incredibly potently dramatically tragic and yet funny because of the distance that you create with the way you create the reading experience. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about how you do that as, as a writer? How, how do you conceive of that? Um, Does it happen or do you plan it? Uh, I don't know how, how I plan it. I, I think... Do you, do you laugh? At, do you make jokes for yourself? As you, I mean, when you're writing this kind of stuff... It, for example, a lot of House of Leaves is is really like rockin' academic satire. Right. And I love a rockin' academic satire. Right. So, I mean, were you like giggling as you wrote some of those uh, footnotes? Yeah, I guess it's, I guess the thing is, is, you know, getting back to that, you know, just sort of that a, a quantum universe, it's, I, I just, I seem to see things and understand things from just multiple perspectives. So it's just simply one scene can appear incredibly funny to someone, and then yet from another angle it can seem very real and serious, and and from another angle it can seem very sad and and... And, and so on. And I, I think the simplest example is like old early slapstick, which, you know, every kid seems to find in, uh, enormously amusing of, you know, you see someone beaten over the head with a shovel and, and it's funny. And yet if you go into the place of the guy getting whacked on the head with the shovel, it, it hurts, you know? And I think probably what happens is, is that I just, you know, the way, the way my books are structured, they... They allow both of those experiences to happen simultaneously at the same time, and it's kind of the, the filter that the reader runs through it. They can look at it as being funny, or they can look at it as being tragic, and, you know. Um, or so both I think at in that once. sense, it's intentional. Excuse me? Or both at once. Or both at once. Well, I think that's ultimately, it's, that's the goal, really. And I think that's, that points towards a kind of, uh, if you will, social health. The ability to, and it's certainly what Fitzgerald pointed out too. It's the it's it's the ability to put um to cont you know to to well or as Whitman said to contain contradictions or as Fitzgerald said to to be able to um, have two opposing ideas in your head at the same time. You know this idea of being able to hold many valences and qualities without just sort of descending into some you know unfathomable. Uh, gear-wrenching, computer-crashing, you know, uh, black hole, you know, ultimately you can still, out of that, come away with a sense of what's going on there. I have to ask you, as you wrote these footnotes, especially for House of Leaves, the re research you did to create, like, the volume and, and the, to make those footnotes seem like they referred to real magazines and real articles... It's very impressive. Hmm. Did, did, did you like, did you check all this stuff? 
It's a great question. I'm not going to answer it, though. Because <laughs> that's when you start getting into actually the gears of uh, the mechanisms of, of the novel. And I certainly wanted to, wouldn't want to deprive someone who was, who, was, who was looking at that very experience and whatnot. But it's a good question. <laughs> well, let's talk about storytelling because you're a wonderful storyteller and you like to tell stories. And you tell them from in a variety of fashions. One of the things you do wonderfully is to use nonfiction styles and, and uh, essays as a way to create a fictional world. Tell me a little bit about why you choose to do that. Well, I mean, in, that's, in that respect, you're talking about um, House of Leaves. And, and that was, you know, that was very important for the whole structure. This was a movie that was being commented upon it was it was we were it was about you know the distance that Zampano created from the darkness that he inhabited and was afraid and and then the way Johnny approaches it and layers on things and so so that you know that that was that was part of the of the, of the um of the of the structure of the scenery of the set you know it was it was those were the the particular you know those footnotes were the particular way of creating the story and creating the tensions in the story and the story was incredibly important for house of leaves um only revolutions oddly enough was more about taking the story out uh i had always imagined that and envisioned that that House of Leaves was about plot, literally and figuratively. It's where the house the house sits on a plot, and it's constructed of stories. So, whenever Johnny mentions story, it's it it has a resonance that harmonizes throughout the text. Um, Only Revolutions, by contrast, is about character. It's character driven, figuratively and figuratively and literally. And so for me, it was what I, what I really wanted to do was, was grapple with the experience of the road trip, not seen as a sweetly contained plot, as many road trips are, you know, movies or, or, or stories are with, you know, characters that are recurring and, and scenes of, you know, of, of oddness and whatnot, and really kind of hang true to, to that road trip that, we really are most familiar with when you're when you're heading down a road and everything's blurring by you and you're letting you're encountering accidents and letting them go you're encountering exits to cities that you'll never visit and you know if you're really aware it becomes overwhelming what you're passing so for me it was it was important not to overburden this particular book with all sorts of plotting devices and really cleave to who Sam was and who Haley was and how they, you know, they moved across the landscape of America and American and world history. So those are two techniques, and yet story is at the center of them. It's just in one case I'm sort of piling things on, and in another case I'm actually making an effort to pull things out and make it as sort of clean as possible. 
you talked about the importance of time in our lives, and I, I certainly agree. When you make a decision to read a book, you're saying, okay, I'm going to spend X hours reading this book, and time is very important within your books. You do a lot of telescoping back and forth between time. The historical narratives that you have running next to the character pieces in um, Only Revolutions create a really interesting time effect. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you feel about time within the narrative of Only Revolutions and why you chose to do what you did. Well, I think it's, you know, again, that's one of those things where I can't really answer because it's a, it's a, it's a great question and, uh, you know, it's, its significance is there for, for all the readers who want to engage that text. Um, but... You know, on a on a simple level, I think I, I can say that it's it is about perspective in some ways. It is about making decisions not necessarily fueled by a, a certain emotional rashness that is in you know that is that is causally you know defined by some you know, immediate act, but actually, you, you know, taking a step backwards and seeing how such, you know, a moment is related to history at large, you know, that, you know, okay, this is terrible what happened here on such and such a day, but let's not forget that there was a hu hurricane in, in India that killed 300,000 people. And, you know, how was our, how, how do we temper our reactions based on that? You know, I mean, I, you know, I personally you know, bring myself into check as I'm getting wound up about, you know, certain sentences and how they, you know, how they function in the larger context of this book by calling a friend of mine who's um, one of the heads of uh, uh, a pediatric ICU in Pittsburgh. And I'm talking to him and he's telling me the two kids died that night. I mean, it's just it sort of puts things into perspective, you know, and, and it's not to, it's not to, lessen what I do, but it's to find sort of that, that middle, that middle ground. Um, so I think, you know, time, it, it's, it's understanding what time we're in. It's understanding what time means for us. It's understanding its value. It's understanding its, its ability to cast a spell we, when we live in the future. It's very complicated, but wonderful. Your books for... How was that for a non-answer? <laughs> that was like a little tap dance by saying, I'm not going to tell you and just kind of tapping on. Well, that was a, a excellent <laughs> usage of time. <laughs> exactly. Let's just cut that one out. <laughs> you work in House of Leaves, at least. You uh, use uh, some of the tropes of uh, genre fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and horror fiction in particular, not necessarily what one would associate with highfalutin literary fiction. Right. What made you choose, why did you think that horror fiction and the tropes and, and devices that it uses were worthy of bringing into your world? Why did you want to use oh, that? I don't, I don't think it's unworthy. I, I just love it. I love it. I love, I love genres. I think they're so... They're interesting. There's, they're, they, they condense so much. I think, uh, 
you know, it's it's it, a lot of the writers that I you know that I like uh, contemporary writers such as Thomas Pynchon or Vonnegut or um, Marquez. You know, they they they're willing to to allow the the fantastic, the the magical, without just spinning off into La La Land by just recognizing that even if it is just a fantasy, even if it is just a daydream, even if it is just a projection of our own inner fears, it nonetheless has a place. It is part of our history. Our dreams and our fantasies are just as part of the creative fabric around us. They they enable us to move through certain situations and certain circumstances. Um, and uh, so I didn't I didn't want to throw that out and just write a a story about a tea party. I'm not ready for that, you know. Maybe one day I should write a story about a tea party. I wonder what I would do with that. How would I how would I write a story about a tea party? I mean obviously there would be tea and they'd be sitting out on the lawn and and then we'd have different characters and but there'd be something going on, right? There'd be something about the tea. There'd be something somewhere. in the tea. Be something in the tea or maybe not maybe there would be no tea or maybe the tea would be fine and it would be about someone else that wasn't coming or hasn't ha- hasn't arrived yet or you know and what time would it be in and all of that i mean getting back to the time question sort of was interesting because one of the things that i always saw was how sam and Haley were in this state where everything else around them was blurring by and how terrifying that would be it was almost like looking through the you know, it, it, at points I'm, I, I look at them completely as homeless kids who are unpursued by by any family or law. And yet at other times I think, well, this is the way gods would look. You know, with, with the world just blurring by, they would, be, they would be disconnected from that. They wouldn't care about the tragedies, about entire wars or, or 9-11. It would just be these little blips that moved past them because they were so self-involved that they really wouldn't care, you know. Um, the world was moving far faster than even for the gods on Mount Olympus, you know, who actually did take some interest in the, in the, in the, in the, in the battle of Troy, you know, for Sam and Haley, they're serving coffee while World War II and the Holocaust takes place. And if you really want to get into it, if you're, if you're living that long, we always assume that, okay, well, we're, we're going to, you'd be processing information at the same speed as you and I process information. In fact, you may be processing it so much more quickly, you know, maybe more like our relationship to mayflies or bubbles on a stream. It just da, 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 gone. At a different level of granularity. Yeah. I mean, I filter out 99% of everything and time moves at a perfectly acceptable pace. Absolutely. Exactly. So, you know, I think that was kind of that conception of trying to really, as as anthropomorphic, anthropocentric as only revolutions is, it's also anthropodecentric weirdly enough. Well, it's both at once. Back to the quantum haze. (laughs) (laughs) When you read Only in Revolutions, when I read it, it's almost impossible not to read aloud, Mm -hmm. which, of course, changes the reading experience. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you conceived of the reader reading that, like, on the bus. (laughs) Do you think about what your readers are doing when they're reading, or... Are they reading aloud? Do you do you, and you read aloud wonderfully? So tell us a little bit about the. Well, one thing I just realized is that that you know only only revolutions is so concerned with 
you know, question of love and liberty and how those two can be in conflict and yet how they can also offer the other to the other. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's apparent in its history. It's, an, it's apparent in, in the narrative flow, the way Haley and Sam are connected to one another, ultimately, you know, codependent upon each other. Um, but then I also realized that there is something, because I'm starting to hear this more and more, that really demands that the words be freed from the page, from the words themselves, that they really do, that they really should be spoken and, and, and brought out in some, you know, sputtery, personal way. And I love that. I love the fact that the, the words really are trying to get off the page. And I, I think, you know, I, I, the book is, you can read the book any way you want really, you know, I mean, there's a trailhead that's provided by the publisher. I met a um, 17-year-old girl recently at a reading, and her father told me that she was just in tears at the end of the thing, and she'd read it in three days, and she just read Haley. That was it. She started with Haley and just barreled straight through, and I was pretty impressed, and, and I what I understood later was that she didn't read the history, you know, like a good, you know, teenager, she's, ah, I don't care about the history. I'm not going to deal with it. That's something I'll eventually learn or whatever. I want to know what she's doing, you know, and and she just hung to that and she moved through it. And I think she realized like, oh, there's going to be words I don't know, but that's okay. I'm just going to skip past them and, and kind of, I'm going to get the flow of it. And so I think that's a great way to read it, you know. I, in many ways, I think the, the book almost has to be downloaded. You almost, if you read one side, you're really not getting the whole thing. You know what I mean? You have to you really sort of have to consume the whole thing and then let go of the book and allow it to sort of shimmer inside you and begin to see like, oh, wait a minute, I see that. I see this is that scene and, you know, and sort of it assembles outside of the book, really. That's one thing about your books. Most books you get, there's pretty much one way to read them and everybody reads them exactly the same way. With your books, I don't think any, it's, it's absolutely, I would say, categorically impossible that any two people could read your books in the same way. Right. Tell us a little bit about how how you, is that something you think about in, in terms of creating this reading experience to create, make it unique for every single reader? Because no reader is going to experience any of those books in the same way as another That's or even closely. That's interesting. I wonder how I actually process that because I certainly don't think in those terms I think what I do, what I do regard as significant with books is that there is an active participation in the reading. This is not a passive form of entertainment. You know, this is something that you are actively involved in. And the result of those kind of challenges is ultimately a reward that's going to exceed a passive experience. It's, you know, it's sometimes I use the analogy of of sports or, you know, of working out, of running, as we were talking about earlier. You know, sometimes it's not always that great to go running, but it's fulfilling and it, you, 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 it works your body, you connect, you, you start thinking in a different way and, and you ultimately feel very satisfied. And that, that's the book I want. I don't want someone to read a book and go, oh God, that was, that was kind of fun, but what a waste of time. What a, what a, what a crappy ending or, or something like that. It's, you know, but I guess this even goes further. It's sort of like extreme lit. It's, you know, <laughs> Rubik's Cube for the Brain or boot camp, you know, <laughs> fiction. This book also really, I think, 
does emulate in many ways our current environment where we're taking in many streams of information simultaneously. And you clearly do that deliberately. Tell us a little bit about some of the research you did for the history, because the history parts of the book are incredibly artfully arranged so that, for example, I, I've been, you know, I have pretty good memories of everything since 1963. Mm -hmm. So as I read this, I as I'm reading about Haley's experiences and reading about the history, I'm tagging my personal experiences when I remember this little bit of history or this little nugget of information. It gets tagged with Haley's or Sam's experience. Mm -hmm. That's great. I mean, it was a, it was a lot of work. It, it involved, a, you know, just on a personal level, you know, culling through an enormous amount of... Uh, encyclopedias and books and and of all sorts whether it was about uh, women in history black history sports um, and yet at the same time I, I I was also reliant on the kind of the best of the 60s the sort of the single events of the 70s and so for that I actually I turned to high school textbooks and uh, you know just you know your standard history you know, encyclopedia primers for the AP history test because you you could actually create an entire history. You know, during say World War II, that would reflect not that wouldn't even comment on the fact that there was a war going on, for instance, or that the atom bomb was 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 going off. You could it could be about a personal moment in you know Mississippi or something like that. So it was this balance between the the peculiar and obscure with the the national and the international. And then I was always talking to people wherever I would go about their favorite history, historical moment, their personal moment. I would take notes, and then I opened that up even to various forums uh, online, and so people submitted their historical moments that, that were important to them and their own personal moments, and so those were kind of, you know, woven in. And, and then, of course, they were all relevant to to where Sam and Haley were. So, you know, some were applicable and some weren't. And and sometimes there was one that was completely, in, uh, you know, unapplicable, but it was important that it was there because Sam and Haley, they, sometimes they are history and sometimes they're outside of history. And, and that's where, you know, an immense amount of complexity enters the picture. Your language is very musical and as is your sister. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you've written lyrics for, for her band. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the influence of music on your work. Oh, I don't know if it's an, actually an influence on. I think it, it probably, it's probably the origin in many ways. I just, I, I'm most comfortable in, in, in listening to musical passages and how things harmonize and whatnot. And I think it just, it's sort of, for whatever reasons, I just sort of push more towards text, whereas my sister pushes more towards notes and and melodies. But, you know, one of the questions that has often come up is how did I write House of Leaves? You know, did I write first the story of the house, then add Johnny Truant later? And for me, it was always like writing a symphony. There were just different parts. You know, you would write the the strings, and the woodwinds, and the brass, and all that, and they would just all, they would kind of play together the same melody, and the same is certainly true of, of only revolutions, though in that sense it's probably less symphonic, it's more um, like a prepared piano, and, <laughs> and a carefully corrugated, polished uh, 
uh, <laughs> garbage pail. Um, but music certainly is there, and, and certainly as I was working on the various sections, um, it was helpful to listen to music of the times to to catch the way some of the phrasing, you know, some of the phrasing of certain terms were were used. So if I was in the, you know, 30s and 40s, I was listening to Billie Holiday and Swing and heading towards bebop and all of that. And if it was in the 60s, it was rock and roll. 50s, you know, the rockabilly and, you know, big band numbers, you know, all of that stuff. And it just sort of, get, you know, there was a wide variety in the 90s. It was more hip-hop and grunge and, you know, so I would listen to different different influences. But then sometimes I just needed to listen to Bach. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about the 50-year sword. That's a very peculiar book. It's beautiful. It's hard to find. Right. What motivated you to write it and publish it in the manner that you did? Well, I consider Only Revolutions my second book. Uh, the Whalestow Letters was more like an extended single. It was the letters from the, you know, from the appendix of House of Leaves. And 50-Year Sword was just a story that I wrote. And it was just a, it was a, it was a question of timing. I really sort of wrote it, read it to a couple of friends and put it in a drawer, at which point I got a call from my Dutch publisher that said, do you have anything that we could do for kind of a Halloween number? And I said, well, funny that you should call. At this moment, I have this. And, you know, it's like, it was 40, 50 pages. It wasn't very long. And, um, so I sent it, I, you know, I started to put it together and, when they got it, they were like, well, this is color, and this is going to be a lot more expensive than we thought, but, you know, we still want to do it, so so maybe we'll do it in a, in a year, you know, and I said, that's fine, and so I sort of, you know, sort of slowly put the whole thing together, and then I, I liked it, and then they said, well, what about an illustrator, and, and I thought, oh, that would be really nice, that would work, because it has this sort of children's tale, ghost tale thing, you know, vibe to it, and uh, we, we looked at a couple of... Um, Dutch artists that just didn't work out. They really weren't right. They were too comic-y, very talented, but just not right. And the weirdest thing is when I had been over in Holland, I was in the airport leaving after my after the, the, the first book tour for the Dutch version of House of Leaves. And I look over, and in line, I see a man who is entirely recognizable to me. And he's recognizable because I've seen him idling around my neighborhood. And I look at him, and I've never said a word to him. I look at him, and he looks at me, and he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm a writer. And he says, well, I said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm an artist. <laughs> Turns out he's a Dutch artist, and he's my neighbor. So I approached him. We became friends, and then, you know, a few years passed. Here I am in the middle of this trying to find an illustrator, and I approached him, and I said, what would you think about doing one picture? He said, sure, I'll give it a crack. And he provided the the cover image, and it was just mesmerizing. And I thought, oh, this is beautiful. His name, his name is Peter Van Sambake. And he provided, you know, these beautiful, luscious, lustrous plates. And, um, and you know, we put that together. It was perfect that he was kind of an, ex, an, ex, an expat Dutchman. And... Uh, very talented, enthusiastic, and the whole thing came together, and we released it on Halloween in Holland, and and there you have it. <laughs> We've been speaking with Mark Danielewski. 
His new work is Only Revolutions. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.